0: The following message is entitled, The Eternal Word, Part 3. This message was given during the morning service on August 7, 2022 at the East Side Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially the credentials of Christ, come about here in John chapter 1. It is laid out very plainly in the first 15 verses especially who Jesus Christ is the eternal God man we needed Jesus to come to earth because our lives are hopeless without his death and resurrection on the cross hopeless and helpless those are two words you could write on the note sheet in the introduction every human's life is helpless and hopeless Every human was born helpless and hopeless. Humans are born into this world suffering from the eternally damning condition of spiritual darkness. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Darkness, as we will see repeatedly in this gospel, refers to the moral darkness of this planet. So what you have here is the hopeless condition of humanity in verse 5 completely dark an outside source has to shine into the heart of a human otherwise it is hopeless this must be thoroughly grasped for us to understand why the eternal word Jesus Christ had to come to pierce the darkness with the light of his salvation And not only is man hopeless, as you wrote down, but he's helpless. Look at John chapter 15. Gospel of John chapter 15. Notice verse 5. John 15 verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Only true believers abide. The word means to remain. Abiding and fruit are mentioned throughout this passage in John 15 from verses 1 to 17. It's a treatise on what a true believer is. Nowhere in this passage of John 15, verses 1 to 17, is profession of faith a fruit. Abiding and fruit-bearing are the evidences of true salvation. Profession is how one gets saved. Fruit and abiding are the evidences of conversion. You and I have probably run into many a believer in and out of our church. And you say, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That is not a fruit. That is how you got saved. It is wrong to ever attest to yourself, to the Lord, or to others that the proof of your conversion is your profession. You can't get saved unless you receive Christ by true profession. But professions can be faked, obviously, or not be sincere. And so, what Jesus lays out in John 15 is the twofold evidence that one is truly saved. Abiding, or remaining, and fruit-bearing. And in verse 5, he talks about both. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and that's the remaining, the fourth time it's used in this chapter, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, fruit fruit-bearing. For apart from me, to be apart from me means that you aren't saved. It is impossible for someone to be a branch attached to the true vine, Jesus Christ, and be called as a true believer apart from me. You cannot, this is an evidence of security, you cannot be separated from Jesus Christ once you're truly saved. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's helplessness. Helplessness. No one can be saved or bear fruit apart from Jesus Christ. It is not my will plus God's will as I've taught you to be saved. It is not my power plus God's power to be sanctified. It is not our power combined with Willpower combined with God's power to save us. It is all God's power. He has to transform our wills to receive him. And it is not my willpower plus God's willpower that sanctifies us. That's as Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 tells us is inherent legalism. He points out right here in verse 5 talking about true believers. That true believers can do nothing apart from the presence and power of Jesus Christ. So back to John 1. Hopeless. The darkness, verse 5 of chapter 1, does not comprehend the light. Hopeless. Look at John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There is no ability to either overpower or understand the light of Jesus Christ apart from the enabling enlightenment of God himself. Man is hopeless. Hopeless watching a Rifleman episode last night and uh, that's from the 1950s and Lucas McCain gave his philosophy which was very true of the United States back then that uh, he found there's good and bad in every human, not true humans who are unsaved can do good things but man is not dualistic he is completely darkened to the light of Jesus Christ he's unified in his darkness and he cannot comprehend it, he is hopeless. There's no ability to understand who Jesus Christ is. This is one of the great concerns, as you know I have, for professed believers in church, and more than a few in our own church, frankly, sadly, currently, who cannot seem to ever comprehend the Word of God. It's a complete mystery to them. They can read verses and never understand it. That is not what the light of Jesus Christ does to the mind of a true believer. Notice darkness, unsaved condition in verse 5, is a mark. It's marked by lack of understanding. It is one of the great tells that a person is a false believer who cannot understand or explain the word of God hopeless. And as we just saw in John 15, completely helpless. To not have Christ in the life, there is no hope. And so in John 15, he goes on to say in verse 6 that you have to abide in Christ as an evidence that you are saved. So abiding and remaining. So let's count this up. Is profession an evidence of conversion? No. No. Why? Because someone can be a professed believer and be saved or unsaved. That doesn't tell you anything. Now, if you don't make a profession, you're not saved. But profession does not mean you're saved. So can we completely remove that off the table? If there's anything in your mind that says, well, I know I'm saved because I received Christ, wrong. That's not how you know you're saved. At all. We understand that? Why? A false believer can make the same prayer. And not be saved. Right? Okay. Church attendance is not an evidence of conversion. Church attendance is mentioned nowhere in the New Testament. There is no command in the New Testament to attend church. You know that, right? Yes? No? Okay. So church attendance, we take that off the table. So coming in here this morning, we could never say, well, I know I'm saved because i received Christ, I prayed the prayer of salvation, and because I love coming to church. You remove those completely from the table. Those don't prove that you're saved and I'm saved at all. Preaching sermons doesn't prove that I'm saved. You can serve a church and be an unbeliever, though you can't be truly saved and never serve a church. That's impossible. According to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, one of the evidences of God's grace working in us is that we use our spiritual gifts you can't be truly saved and not serve, but you can be unsaved and serve. Did you catch that? You you cannot be truly saved and never serve with your gifts. But you can be unsaved and serve. We can fake conversion by profession, by attendance, and by service. Both believers and fake believers can make profession attend, and serve. Then how do we know we're saved? We just saw it in John 15. Abiding and fruit-bearing. Those are your major evidences. No unbeliever can do those two. No fake believer does those two. All humans born, in verse 5 of John 1, are born into moral darkness they are hopeless they can't comprehend the light they cannot And as we saw in John 15 they are helpless because they're apart from Jesus Christ but our depravity isn't just a, hopelessness and helplessness are not just signs of depravity in our lives are not just signs of darkness darkness and depravity would be synonymous terms in verse 5 it is not just that we are dark and evil and powerless to change our condition, our darkness and depravity goes further. And when we go further into the issue of whether we are darkened or unsaved or not in this planet, we have to get into the issue of rebellion. Write it down. Humans reject God's only solution. Helpless, hopeless, hopeless, and rebellious. An unbeliever rejects God's only solution. I was talking to a coworker, again about the Lord. I said to him, "You're either a practicing Catholic or a non-practicing Catholic, which are you?" He just smirked at me. He didn't answer. Didn't want to answer me. So I told him some more truth from the Bible, and he just walked away. That's rejection. Look at verse 11. It's the third mark of depravity. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not what? Did not receive him. It's rebellion. We saw that Sunday school lesson. Hophni and Phinehas did not listen to who? Pardon? I can't hear you. It was not his father in heaven. Eli. Did not listen to Eli. Obviously, they didn't listen to God in heaven, but they refused to listen to their father because God wanted to what? Kill him. It is actually, and this is what Randy was saying, this is an excellent point, and it comes up with verse 11 here. Rejection of truth when it is taught to you and the heart is hardened to it is a sign of divine judgment. That's verse 11. Those were his own. Did not receive him this is rebellion against truth to be saved and certainly professed believers can rebel against the truth to be sanctified now two two Sundays two months ago i uh, last sunday on the first sunday of the month i did a topical series but two uh, months ago on the first sunday of the month in june i focused on this truth of depravity in verse 11 as an introduction to this gospel that we're still continuing an introduction The supreme mark of an unbeliever is lack of comprehension and an unwillingness to receive. Those are two essential marks of someone who's lost. Lack of comprehension, verse 5, unwillingness to receive, verse 11. And when those occur as a professed believer under the word of God being taught to them as Christians, lack of understanding and lack of reception those are telling signs that a person is a fake believer. The Word of God to a true believer brings, the Spirit of God brings the true believer under the powerful moving effect of the Word of God, read or taught to them. Brings them to conviction. Brings them to action. And when the true believer is brought under the power of the Spirit, when the Word is taught to them to respond and to receive then abiding and fruit bearing takes place in John 15 so this lack of comprehension verse 5 lack of reception verse 11 are marks telling marks of the spirit of God not working in an unbeliever so that's why we pray that the unbeliever will be open opened by the spirit to the gospel it is not because we don't say everything right that a person doesn't get saved It is because they do not comprehend verse 5 and they do not receive verse 11. Their condition is helpless and hopeless. For backslidden or rebellious family members or friends, it's the same thing. We pray that they would understand and receive. Verse 5, verse 11. There can be no transformation or restoration unless someone who is claiming to be saved but in rebellion comprehends the truth that's being sent sent to them through the word taught or read and they then must receive it with the will verse 11 receiving is obviously not a verbal reception it is the will in the mind the decision-making accepts and this is because man is darkened and he is hopeless Ephesians 4 still in the introduction. This is why Jesus had to come. He didn't come for good people. He didn't come for people who had self-worth. Man is corrupt and lost, Ephesians. Paul gives us a defining description of this darkness. Ephesians chapter 4. This is our society today. Ephesians 4 Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. So we're not to behave like we were before we were saved. This is what we would call transformational Christianity. Pastor Sam has settled into Florida. He's found a Baptist church down there in Lehigh Acres. And he said, this pastor that I'm sitting under, he said, is a transformational teacher. Transformational Well, that's good because every Bible-believing pastor and teacher is supposed to teach transformation. We're supposed to be different than we were. Okay, Well, the Mary marks of a Catholic is they claim to believe stuff and it never transforms them. You ask a Catholic, any Catholic on this planet, how has your Catholicism changed your life? They won't know what you're talking about. Absolutely no clue whatsoever. So verse 17 is transformational teaching. You walk no longer. No longer spells out the fact that we used to walk. Gentiles is referring to lost humanity, predominantly lost non Jew humanity. You're not to walk like they did. And then he describes what an unbeliever is futility of the mind, absolutely foolish in their mind. Then he defines that, verse 18. Darkened in their understanding. There it is. Hopeless, helpless. They're darkened, just like we saw in John 1 5. And then we see the apart from issue, the apart from issue. Remember that in John 15 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, the next phrase in verse 18 is the apart, the separation. Excluded from the life of God. That's the powerful, life changing truth. Because they're helpless, they don't comprehend, they're ignorant. And why are they ignorant? Because they're hardened in their heart. That's a terrible thing to be, hardened. It speaks to callousness, an inability to receive truth where it is convicting. This is where you and I as believers should be saying this. When was the last time I, as a professed believer received word read or word taught that convicted me of sin and motivated me to change not just feeling guilty remember unbelievers feel guilty guilt alone is not a mark of conversion cuz unbelievers can feel guilty it is guilt that leads to repentance hardness is the mark of an unbeliever okay so an inability to comprehend the Bible, ever, is a mark of an unbeliever. Darken in understanding, verse 18. Having no power to change, no transformation excluded from the life of God, that's a mark of an unbeliever. Permanently ignorant of truth, verse 18. Hardened with no sense of guilt and conviction under repentance, verse 18. The hardness then becomes a callous. This is progression of hardness. Hardness verse 18, callous verse 19. No sensitivity whatsoever. So hardness could still have some sensitivity. Hardness in your heart would be, this sermon's convicting me, but I won't. Boy, he's making me feel guilty, but I won't. That's hardness. Callous is, I don't feel any guilt anymore. It's progression of decay. So then when that happens, they give themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It all starts up in verse 18 with darkened minds that do not understand it is a horrible thing to be a professed believer and permanently be ignorant of the bible not understand things that you're reading having no transformation no conviction under repentance hardness callousness, and then the three decadent sins that take over Giving themselves over is the Greek phrase in verse nineteen for decadence. Decadentia sounds in the Latin just like it does in the English decadentia. But here, the idea of decadence, or is it, the word decadence in Latin means a moral falling away, and that's what this is. Having given themselves over, they are abandoned to. Sensuality, impurity, and greed. Those are the three marks of our society right now. We've been abandoned. When those are in a person's life, they're already under judgment. This is total rebellion. Harden and refuse to accept truth. In contrast, verse 20 of Ephesians 4 you did not learn Christ in this way. We came to Christ and it transformed us. Back to John chapter 1. No wonder we needed Jesus Christ to intervene this this that we've been studying again this morning is the description of every unbeliever it doesn't matter whether they are a professed believer or an outright pagan who's never darkened the door of a Bible-believing church let's count up the wreckage John chapter 1 verse 5 can't understand truth at all can't this is not an educational issue You need to understand this I've run into countless believers who I don't read very well I don't understand very well this is just the way I am no that's an unbeliever the power of God overcomes any human mind to be able to comprehend the truth of the word to not comprehend is not an educational issue it's not an IQ issue to not comprehend in verse 5 is a moral darkness issue and only that, unless one is a complete mental vegetable, mentally impaired to the point where they can't even to comprehend their surroundings, can't bathe themselves, can't do anything because they're completely gone. And there are certainly these type of brain-damaged and dead humans that are born in such impairment. That's not what I'm referring to. So, please notice in verse five. And all of us need to be warned of this severely. To not comprehend truth means one is not saved. Are we clear on that? Darkness, moral darkness, prevents understanding. Okay. Wreckage number two rebellion, verse 11. Helpless and hopeless because they will not receive, will not truly receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. So we have ongoing ignorance of God's word among the lost that we saw in Ephesians 4. We have unrepentant minds in verse 11. We have incredible forgetfulness back in Ephesians 4, not caring about retaining the knowledge of his word so when we go back to the issue of profession of faith on a communion sunday the bible demands that we examine the condition of our minds to see if there's conversion service doesn't mean you're saved attendance doesn't mean you're saved profession does not mean you're saved or i am we have to look for these evidences of comprehension verse five Reception and willingness, verse 11. Knowledge of the truth that grows in a mind that's been transformed. Abiding, in John 15. Fruit bearing, in John 15. These are the evidences that one is truly believing and truly saved. If we were to go through the churches that are Bible-believing in our world today and confronted every professed believer, we would find a total battlefield devastation in our churches of believers who made a profession and hang everything on that they received Jesus without examining for these evidences the overwhelming number of individuals in our churches are going to hell having proclaimed Christ still as Lord and Savior. That was Matthew 7 that Randy had us read this morning. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The way is broad that leads to destruction, the way is narrow that leads to life. That means many will say, Lord, Lord, but they don't get saved, they're not saved. It's much akin to someone who's physically very ill, and they refuse to accept that they are physically ill. They finally go see a doctor, but they don't like the advice that's given. The tests show on the scan, the MRI, that there is something very wrong internally. And they laugh at the scan and reject it. What would you do with a physical medical patient who is deathly ill and rejects all the evidences that they are sick and claims that they are well? There is no hope for such a person. They're going to die. That's terminal, right? For a person to go to the doctor, deathly ill, MRI is taken, huge, horrible mass is shown to be there, The patient laughs at the scan, says, I reject your advice, doctor. I will not listen to you, and I reject what you're saying, and walks out. This is what we face today, as well as in John's day in verse 5 of chapter 1. mass number of individuals in our churches. They are scanned with the MRI of the word. The evidences of illness are presented to Christian patients. The evidences that there is no conversion are presented. The deadly eternal illness of hell awaits. Lack of comprehension, lack of reception, lack of abiding, lack of fruit bearing. They're all on the MRI. And the Christian who claims to be a Christian sits helpless and hopeless because they have no spirit they're false converts. They reject the truth. And they reject Christ. There is no hope for such an individual. Hophni and Phineas, as we learned in Sunday school, were doomed because they were apostates. They were doomed and would not listen to either Eli or to God because they were apostates. Apostates cannot be saved. But in the darkness of verse 5, there are those that do turn. Verse 12 tells us that. There are many that receive him. So God opens the hearts and minds of humans across this planet, has down through the history. they are far fewer than we would think there are. We've just been duped and conned by the massive numbers of professed believers in our American Bible-believing churches, but that's, that's insidious. The number of true converts has always been very few and far between. The many in verse 12 isn't speaking to a majority, it just speaks to a plurality. The Greek word all through the New Testament just speaks to a plurality. It could be a plurality of two or two thousand. There's no, you can't put a number or a majority or percentage on that word many. He's just saying those who do, the plurality that do receive. And that number is far fewer than we would ever imagine. Our churches will be gutted, gutted at the second coming of Jesus Christ by those that are cast into hell who claim to be saved, who were professors of faith in Jesus Christ church sitters and servers and they end up in hell and they will scream and do scream forever in hell that God has gotten it wrong that he made a mistake that I should not be there I made a profession of faith profession is how we get saved practice is how we prove that we are truly believers so there are those that get saved and this is why the darkness was pierced by the light in your note sheet Series number one, The Wonder of Christ's Life Introduced, is verses 1 to 18, and the stage is set for Christ's introduction to humanity as eternal God-man, and we've begun in June to study the deity of Jesus Christ in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verses 1 and 2. So in your note sheet, under the deity of Christ, letter A, the beginning, the Word was God. The Word was God. Right at the start of the gospel, John the Apostle, JTA, gives us four dramatic statements about Christ as the eternal Word in verses one and two. Four statements, you can write it on the blank lines under letter A. Four dramatic statements are given to us by John. And statement number one is listed. "In the beginning was the word. This speaks to, and fill in a blank under number one, the eternality of the divine Word, the eternality, the eternal nature of the divine Word in the beginning, speaks to the eternality of Jesus Christ. It's a statement of eternality, as letter A says. In the beginning. The eternal word, logos, existed alone in the beginning. This is very reminiscent of the opening words of the book of Genesis. In both cases, the statement in the beginning does not refer to some moment in time. This was before time existed. It assumes a timeless eternity. The idea here is... In verse 1 here, when the heavens and earth were created, as well as in Genesis 1, the eternal word already existed. Letter B. The beginning of time is a statement that means that Christ was there when time and creation were created, when the heavens and the earth were created, excuse me, when time and creation came into being. So the beginning of time is a statement that means that Christ was there when time and creation came into being. So beginning refers to before time and creation came into being. And Christ comes on the scene, moving into time and space to take a human body number one under that realize this important point Christ was already in existence when the heavens and earth were created it's a transcendent statement in the beginning was the word it doesn't mean that he came into being at creation it means that he was there already that's why letter B says the beginning of time is a statement that means that Christ was there when time and creation came into being he already existed in the beginning So Christ, number one under letter B, Christ was already in existence when the heavens and the earth were created. That means he could not be a created being. Why? Time began with creation of the physical universe. Therefore, anyone who existed before time and creation is eternal, a non-created being. Number two under letter B, let's focus in on this word beginning, RK. It's a quality term. Write that down, quality quality and sense, not temporal, not time-related, figuratively to the initial starting point that always existed, or what comes first is another way of putting beginning, what is chief or foremost, priority is a good word for in the beginning, has the priority, what always existed and had the priority was the word. What had preeminence before time and creation what is chief this is what beginning is referring to it's not choosing a period of time A.D. or B.C. it's referring to a starting point of eternality that existed before creation God and Christ existed before they were preeminent they were foremost they were the supreme priority of existence before creation And on the back side, was is the verb to be. In the beginning, was. This means always was. Imperfect active indicative is the way to define the grammatical structure of the verb. Parse and define. We define we decline nouns and we parse verbs. To parse a verb means to split it up into its working parts, tense, voice, and mood. It's imperfect, always was in the past, active. It is currently now, indicative that it is a state and reality that currently exists. Jesus Christ, who is the Word, as we will see later on in this chapter, Christ is defined as being the Word here, had a continuous, timeless existence going all the way back. In the beginning was the Word. So, in the beginning of what? Quality, priority, existence, God and Christ always were. Christ was the Word. So this verb construction is different from verse 3. In verse 3 it says, all things came into being through him. That's creation. There was a starting point. See that in verse, chapter 1, verse 3? Came into being. Do we see that? That is not a transcendent verb that means always. just a starting point. Came into being, one verb, ginomai in verse 3, means to emerge, transitioning from one point to another. It means to become. All things became through him. It is not equivalent to the ordinary word was in verse 1. Was, I am, will be. These are transcendent. So was speaks to eternal continuity all the way into the past in verse 1. Came into being speaks to something that began, something that became, a starting point. There was a starting point to creation. This speaks against evolution, by the way. Even though evolution speaks to a primordial starting point where life was randomly created, there had to be the elements of the universe for that starting point to occur. So evolution speaks to a uniformity of eternal matter that has always existed that's not true the Bible would denounce that therefore we don't believe in theistic evolution we don't believe that we will merge evolution with creation that's nonsense because verse 3 says all that existed as far as creation came into being at a starting point these type of things attack these horrible heresies that seek to promote evolution in a context of God creating it's not true God created everything. There was a starting point. The Word created. So you see the difference between the verb was for God, for Christ specifically in verse 1 and creation coming into being in verse 3. This is the accuracy and clarity of the Bible. Christ did not come into being. It does not say in the beginning, verse 1 the Word came into being. He was always there. He was there in the beginning when time and the universe were created. He was qualitatively always in existence. Letter D on the backside. the word. In the beginning was the word, logos, ha-logos, has several meanings in the Old and New Testament, Greek and Hebrew aspects of it. Ordinarily, it speaks to the spoken word with emphasis on the meaning conveyed, not just the sounds of words. Therefore, logos is an expression of personality and communication. He is someone who has words. He speaks. He communicates. In the Old Testament, the word is represented as the person. Psalm 33.6, and with this we'll conclude. Psalm 33.6, if you look there. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord. The Greek translation of Psalm 33, verse 6, the LXX as it's called, it's the oldest Greek version of the Old Testament. Traditionally, it was said to have been translated by 70 to 72 Jewish scholars at the request of Ptolemy II. Most scholars believe that only the Pentateuch was completed in the early part of the 3rd century B.C., and that the remaining books were translated of the Old Testament in the next two centuries over time. But the Greek version uses logos here. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So your number one there says the Greek translation uses logos. It is the word of the Lord. It is a logos of the Lord. It is the breath of his mouth. It is his, his word is who he is. That's the point. By the breath of his mouth, it is his words. He is not some computer or robot. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, he's referring to a personality, the eternal God who is creator creator and sustainer. One who communicates truth by verbalizing and speaking or through the written word of God. It is a symbiotic union between God who authored scripture and the human writers. It is God's word through them, breathed out through them. They are expiring. The word inspired in 1 Timothy 3 refers to expiring, to actually breathing out. It is God through the writers. So number two in your note sheet under letter D then, this verse clearly implies that the word of God has creative power. By the breath of his mouth, all their host And God's word is called the universe, his word called the universe into being then. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So all the created beings, all the physical universe was brought into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created into existence the universe. And this is also how someone in darkness comes to light. There has to be ex nihilo, out of nothing in a human heart there is spiritual salvation creation that occurs. Only God creates the universe, only God can create a new creation called the born-again Christian. Just out of nothing, the universe was created, there is nothing in the heart of a human being, ex nihilo, out of nothing in the Latin, out of nothing, a human is converted. There is no inherent goodness, there is no spark of light within a human being, he is in utter darkness. So back to John 1. This is the miracle of conversion. When God saves someone, he transforms. You know what discipleship of a new convert means? I've had people say, well, I don't know how to disciple someone. Really? Because all you have to do to disciple someone who's just gotten saved is teach them what it means to be a Christian. Show them the evidences of conversion and help the individual to examine their own life to see if those evidences are there. That's all discipleship is. Trying to show a person what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, by first making sure they are truly saved by examining the evidences, and then pointing them in the direction of how they're to walk. Because when Jesus Christ saves someone, the eternal word The same word in Psalm 33 that caused creation to take place, this is the word who comes into our world here in verse 5 of John 1, pierces the darkness, verse 9, true light coming into the world, enlightening us, this is ex nihilo, this is creation, we can't convert anybody. You no more can create matter with the power of your mind or hands or words. You cannot save a soul. We do not convince people to be saved. We give them the word of God and it is the spirit who creates the new nature and who converts out of nothing. And when God saves someone, there is not permanent continuance like they were before they were saved. That's impossible. There is no such thing as a professed believer who is never transformed. What God creates, He empowers. He shines light in verse 5. So, number two, this verse clearly implies back in Psalm 33 that the Word of God has creative power, and God's Word called the universe into being. And this is how a person is saved. There is no hope without Jesus Christ. It is not belief in God that saves. A person must be saved believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God, right here in verse 1 of John 1, through John the Apostle, is obviously seeking right up front to make sure we understand the very credentials of our Savior, who is the head of our Christian faith, right here in verse 1. This is brilliant divine teaching on the essence of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the preexistent one, in verse 1, with full divine word power to create. Full divine power to To create. Tenny, the great Greek scholar, said this. To the Hebrew, the word of God was a self-assertion of the divine personality. To the Greek, the formula denoted the rational mind that ruled the universe. John here in verse 1 is asserting that the word is the source of all that is visible and came before the totality of the material world. Only that God who created the world Jesus is the only one who can save the human soul then. The one who was in the beginning as the creative word in verse 1 is the only one that can open the heart of an unbeliever who's hopeless, hardened, and helpless, can open that mind to receive the truth. So what do we do? We pray for the lost. We witness to the lost, knowing it is only the creative power of the eternal word that can save we witness to them and we pray for them that's all we can do that is all we're called to do And we leave the power of God for saving souls what do we do with those that are backslidden in the church that don't live for the Lord don't show fruit same thing all we can do is pray for them all we can do is witness to them the truth of what true conversion means and rest in the creative power of God to enlighten a backslider to return to Jesus Christ with heads bowed and eyes closed this table is for any here that show evidences of conversion profession without possession is a false conversion strip away right now from your own life with heads bowed and eyes closed strip away the three things that do not prove that you're saved Say to yourself, like I would say right now, John, how do you know you're saved? It is not because I made profession, it is not because I attend church, and it is not because I serve. Those are not the evidences. So, dear believer before me, those partaking of communion this morning, claiming to be saved, if you strip away your profession, your attendance, and service past or present, what evidences are in your life that are biblical that prove that you are a believer worthy to partake of communion right now? Guilt over sin is not enough. Guilt unto repentance is enough. Growing faith in the word, growing understanding and comprehension of the word, growing empowerment to obey the word. Abiding in Christ, growing and continuing. If backsliding, I return quickly. Fruit-bearing, examine your life. This table is for anyone who is a believer, who's made profession. You can't get saved if you don't ask. But secondly, this table is only for those that are saved and are showing true evidences of conversion. Let us take the bread together, and with heads bowed, take a moment to reflect upon your life, look for evidences, repent of sins known, and then at your leisure, when you have done that, looked at your own life, examined for evidences of true conversion, and repented of known sins, Then publicly yet privately, together yet individually, in your own timing, given a few minutes now of silence, when you are finished before the Lord quietly examining and reflecting then partake of the bread. Father, your word tells us that we are to examine continuously to make sure we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13 certainly tells us that. Hebrews repeatedly tells us that we are to beware the hardening that occurs for those that are fake it would be I suppose Lord easy for us if it was written in your word that no one could possibly pray a prayer of salvation who then would not be truly saved in our carnality we'd love to have a verse like that where we would literally be unable to verbalize in prayer request for salvation unless it was genuine the words would not form in our mouth we could try as hard as we wanted to to say I repent and receive Jesus but if your word said that that anyone who makes profession will always be saved then it would be impossible for any human to verbalize the gospel to be saved But since the fall, we know that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, and his followers do as well. And we know from your word that just because someone says a prayer doesn't mean in their minds they truly bowed their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, nor does it mean that they truly repented of all their life of sin. In fact, depravity can make us and convince us that it's a magic incantation. That actually the reality is if I just verbalize that prayer, then I will be saved. That comes from depravity, not from you. That comes from Satan, the prince of darkness. It does not come from you. These warnings in your word remind us, Lord, terrifyingly remind us how easy it is to make false profession. Your word, not me, your word tells us we must examine daily to see if we are in the faith. A good thing to do. And we who are truly saved, dear Lord, rejoice in your piercing the darkness of our hearts to save us. We've now examined for fruit. We've now prayed and repented. So now with heads bowed and eyes closed, we now, with silence, rejoice in the cross and our salvation. Take some time at your own leisure to thank Christ for saving you, for dying for you, for rising again from the dead for you. Then when you're done rejoicing, Then partake of the cup by yourself.